Wake up. Leisha Bell is the founder of BLXVC, an angel syndicate of moms mobilizing money for black and brown women entrepreneurs. She's the deal flow lead for Pipeline Angels, a network of women and femmes. Leisha also advises the PayPal Ventures Black Lives Matter Fund and serves on the board for Black Girl Ventures. For more details, go to www.leishabell.com. Hi, my name is Vanessa Pigaros. I have been in tech for over 30 years, my entire career, um, probably in cybersecurity for the last 19 years, focusing on cyber. I've worked in various verticals, including telecom and SaaS and e-commerce and banking. I also currently have been doing board work. So I was on the board for Carbon Black and was part of the board when we sold Carbon Black to VMware. I am currently serving on the audit committee for Boeing Employee Credit Union, and I'm on a couple of boards for small startups called Vouch.id and Presidio. Hello, and welcome to Sisters with Ventures, the podcast where we amplify black and brown women who are angel investors. On this show, we will explore what is angel investing, how to become one, and why would you want to be one? We will discuss how the most marginalized women persevered to the very top of the investing spectrum. Whether you're making money moves or barely making money, listen up. I'm your host, Lee Chabelle, co-founder of BLXVC, an angel syndicate run by Black and Latinx women who are on a mission to represent ourselves and claim our seats on cap tables. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sisters with Ventures, where we amplify the work of amazing black and brown women in their venture journeys. And I'm so excited about today's episode because I have one of my new personal favorites. We have become closely acquainted uh, during quarantine, and we ended up founding the organization together. And I'm sure our lives will forever be connected. Her name is Vanessa Picaros. She is many, many, many things. I'm going to give you a snippet of who she is. She is a chief information security officer. She was CISO at DocuSign. She also led them to their successful IPO in 2018. Prior to that, she was with U.S. Bank, Expedia, Washington Mutual, AT&T Wireless. She serves on the board. Give it up for women on boards of Carbon Black. She also serves on the Boeing Employee Credit Union, and Vanessa holds an MBA from Stanford University, a master's in telecommunications from the University of Colorado, and a BS in engineering from UC Berkeley. Go Bears! And most importantly, she's also a fellow co-investor at Pipeline Angels, where we have also become affiliated. So she has many, many, many ventures to share with us. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leisha. Glad to be here. 
So, Vanessa, you are a national treasure. Um, you were just awarded one of the top 100 LGBTQ Outstanding Professionals of the Year. Congratulations. We are so proud of you. Thank you. You know, you have been doing amazing things, and I think a lot of people don't know and need to know who you are. If you look up even women in cybersecurity, like there's like two, you look at by race or gender. And Vanessa is definitely a trailblazer in so many ways. So Vanessa, why don't you tell us a little bit about like your origin story? Like, where are you from? And help us paint the story of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so let me start with, uh, I was born in San Francisco. And my ethnic background is Mexican. My great grandparents came from Mexico to Texas. And my mom was born in Texas. And then they moved to California and she met my dad there. And that's kind of how that early origin started. I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school. Uh, very first yeah. person to go to college. Right. I'm going to go become an engineer. And so then I went through the process of getting into the minority engineering program at Berkeley. And so I met MEP. Yes, MEP. And I met a black man who ran the program. His name was Charles Tunstall. And Charles, there's a long story around that, but he was so pivotal in helping me through my financial journey at Berkeley. Yeah, um, let's let's pause on that note right there, because as you know, in the state of California, we no longer have affirmative action. Prop 209 wiped us out. But those programs were instrumental in getting black and brown people into STEM careers and getting them exposed to that and retaining those students in colleges. UC Berkeley, probably around your time, Vanessa, used to have representation. And it was because there were programs like this that really make sure the people from the local communities got to get access to these top tier universities. And so I just like love to point that out because these programs, even in 2021, are still vital and still needed for us to make our way through yeah, these institutions. You know, you know, Leisha, that is like such a great, great point. And I don't think I know how I would have made it through that program without that group and the support I received, the tutoring. You know, going to public schools and competing against Students from all over the world in the one of the top engineering programs in the world was not easy. And we oftentimes people of color are just not as prepared, not because they're not smart. It's they right. just don't have those advantages of that kind of education. And not only just education, but preparing you emotionally on how to deal with that kind of environment. And so the minority engineering program was so key. And to this day, I give money to those programs. So I'm sitting in the minority engineering program study area, which is this kind of older building on campus. It's been torn down since then. And I'm stressed out because I have all this schoolwork. I don't have money. I'm trying to figure out how to pay for my tuition and my room and board for the next semester. I am like, my stress level was beyond great. And in walks Charles and Charles he goes, yeah, guess what? And I said, what? And he's like, Pac Bell, Pacific Bell was reaching out to me and asking me, who did I think were some deserving people, students for a scholarship? 
And it was like, I don't know how this stuff happens, but I felt like the universe just like offered me like a life preserver. And I ended up getting that scholarship. I ended up getting an internship with PacBell. And then I eventually ended up taking a job with PacBell out of college. So it was was like incredible. Yeah. And this is when the Bells, Pac Bells, like ruled the world. Like this was like the Google of (laughs) telecommunications, telecom. (laughs) Yeah, this is way back. Pac Bell doesn't even exist anymore, but this is way back. They were the big, they were huge employers. And back in, I graduated in the late 80s. So there weren't a lot of jobs back then. The economy was very different than it is now. So yeah, it was definitely challenging to find a job. So I remember, I just have one more story about Berkeley, because there was this pivotal time at Berkeley, where I think I took, like, it was one of my classes, and I took my first midterm, and I got a D on it. And I didn't really know how to study in this ultra competitive, everything's graded on a curve environment. I didn't know, I didn't have the right skill set. And I remember, at the same time, my dad had lost his job. There was a lot of stress at home. I was the oldest of three kids. And, you know, I would get calls from my family, you know, asking me for help for money. And I'm like, I'm barely, I'm barely surviving myself in that pressure on top of it. And I remember I got called into the professor's office. He's like, you need to come talk to me after I got my D. And he looked at me and he said, I think you should transfer out of this program. And yeah. I started crying right in the middle of this conversation. I had so much stress and I didn't know what to do. But I remember walking out of that office and I remember saying, there is no way I am quitting. I am going to like be successful. This was a moment where I just said, I'm not failing. And I got into the elevator and I went down and it's like, I just was on an upward trajectory after that. I figured out how to study. I joined study groups. I like did all the things that a lot of students were doing that I just didn't know how to do. And I remember on my very last final and I got was in that building and I got into the elevator and in walked that professor and I had passed his class and I looked at him and he looked at me and he kind of nodded his head and I kind of nodded my head. But I was saying, yeah, I did it. I'm still here and I'm graduating. So like I often tell people are like, well, you got into Berkeley, you got the affirmative, you got affirmative action that helped you get in Berkeley. True. Maybe it opened the door for me, but guess what? I didn't get an honorary affirmative action degree. I had to earn that and I had to compete with all these other very talented and sharp and better prepared students than when I joined school. So that was a huge, huge. And I feel like overcoming that, I could overcome anything. No money, like struggling, (laughs) ill-prepared, no support at all from professors who believed in you. In fact, they probably saw me and said, you don't belong here. That's what it felt like. So um, it was sad because I saw a lot of people of color drop out during the time I was there, friends of mine, and they just couldn't get through the pressure and they couldn't figure it out. And they're smart. And I'm like, what kind of school does this to talented, smart people? And so I never really felt a ton of allegiance to Berkeley because of that experience. I will thank Berkeley for making me super tough. And I was able to get through pretty much anything after that. 
So um, <laughs> I went I went on and got my first job. And my first job, my boss, his name was Norm McBride. Norm McBride was, at the time, probably 50 years old, had been at Pac Bell most of his career, a white man who owned a ranch in not San Ramon, the the really wealthy area right next to San Ramon. I can't remember the name of it, but Blackhawk. Yeah, no, well, no, it was uh, it was Alamo. outside of Blackhawk. Anyway, he owned acres of land, <laughs> oh. and he was a typical white man who grew up in Pac Bell. He started digging ditches with the CEO. They would dig telephone ditches with the CEO, and they all worked their way up. He was very male-dominated, very white, male-dominated. But he liked me, and there was something about me. And he took me under his wing as kind of like an he was a sponsor for me. I didn't even know what a sponsor was. And I don't know what he saw me, but he said, hey, I just see you have tons of potential to lead and manage people. And I'm like, okay, I'm just a technical person. I have no thought on that. Anyway, Norm ended up being the person who went and talked to the top people at PacBell, and he ended up getting me sponsored, and they paid for my, I got into Stanford, and they paid for my education to Stanford. They paid for the program, the Stanford MBA. So I look at this, and I look at this white man, and he was the one who really helped me, you know, to get right, to that next right. step. And, so let's transition uh, to your tech career. So. Yeah. You started at Pac Bell. You had a sponsor who graciously paid for your MBA. That's amazing. Yep. And you come out of Stanford, and then, you know, what happens next? Yeah, so I uh, got out of Stanford, and one of the conditions of them paying is I had to go back and work for them out of Stanford. Um, just to make a long story short, I wasn't really interested in the roles they were going to put me in. So I said, you know, I want to go out, and I wanted to go end up working in the wireless space because I saw the huge potential in wireless. This again is back in the early nineties. So there weren't like everybody didn't have a phone. There was no iPhone. There was, you know, like big brick phones that people were carrying around. So I worked really hard to get a role, ended up moving down to Fresno, California to get a role in wireless. And that kind of broke my career open for wireless. And I was in the technology space for wireless. I ended up getting recruited for a job up in Seattle, which is where I live now, and uh, ended up building out the whole wireless network and the technical aspects of it for the Sprint network up here in Seattle, which is now owned by T-Mobile. But that kind of launched my technical career, and I just had numerous positions in technical, in network architecture, new wireless technologies. Uh, started managing bigger and bigger teams of technical people. And then in one of my positions, I got asked by the vice president, hey, we had a assessment done, a security assessment. It came out really bad. I need to assign a director. At that time, I had become a director. I need to assign a director to go fix security. So I said, okay. And I don't know. I know nothing about security. I mean, but I said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. So I took that opportunity when it presented. And then that launched my career in security. From there, I ended up, I worked at WAMU. I worked at US Bank. I went on Expedia, all security roles. And then a friend of mine called me and he said, hey, there, I'm at this company called DocuSign. There's like 500 people at the company. I said, I don't know what DocuSign does. And that was 2013 timeframe. 
And I looked into it and I said, you know, I'm ready for a change. I was at U.S. Bank at the time and I won't want to travel as much back to Minnesota. So I ended up taking the role at DocuSign. That was one of the best decisions career-wise I've made. Stayed with them for five and a half years. We went public. I reaped the benefits of the equity of DocuSign. Financially gave me financial independence. Um, so let's after- let's pause because that's too heavy of a statement to say lightly and not yes. repeat and not pause. Because I don't think even today people understand the pre-IPO companies taking that opportunity, getting that equity, getting in as an early employee. And I think we collectively, people of color, are very risk averse and would rather take, oh, this is guaranteed money, X, Y, and Z. But like, can you help us reset? Because you were at established bank that's been around for hundreds of years, right? You're like, what is this technology? I don't even know what it is. Talk about like, how that financially shifted the trajectory of your outcomes in tech. Yeah, so I, you, Alicia, you and I have talked about this, but, you know, and I think this goes to the audience out there who's pretty financially stable. Because, like, if you think about this, I wasn't able to make this kind of step earlier in my career due to all the financial constraints I had and needing to have a very stable job. And back then, the startup community, they would have all these horror stories about you take no salary and all this stuff. I couldn't afford to do that. I needed a paycheck. And so I think it's very different now. But I think that mentality to take that risk, and I didn't even really know, like, I really didn't understand equity as well. You know, even when I took that role on, I'm like, okay, so this equity, yeah, this could be worth a lot of money if this company is successful. But there's always the risk, like, who knows it's going to be successful or not. But I think it's something I think more people should be considering because the startup community is so vibrant. And guess what? You do get a paycheck. It's not like it was way back where you're working for free, apparently. Like, <laughs> and I think now I wish more people of color at all age levels, at all phases in their career, would consider the startup community because the opportunity to, you know, not every startup is a sign. I call DocuSign a home run, but even if you get a few base hits and those companies are mildly successful, that still helps boost your financial wealth and your independence around money. And once you have that independence about money, I think you're able to just have the freedom and flexibility to do so much more. And it's just a wonderful cycle where the more you have freedom to do the things that you enjoy the more successful you become. And it's so hard, I think, you know, most definitely myself in my early years, and we have a lot of financial constraints and we can't take those risks on. But I would say now is the time for people of all ages and places in their career to take that risk. The tech companies are creating so much wealth. Because there is a labor shortage. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think even if you, I went to a startup that was not a home run and was a complete failure and disaster and lasted six months. But I tell you, working in that environment and building from the bottom up changed my career as well. You know, like I'm still waiting on their (laughs) their exit. (laughs) It may or may not happen, but that experience was so valuable. And I think Sometimes we think we're locked into things for a long time, 
you know, and yeah. they, I mean, that was just 2013. It's, you know, how long were you at Doggy Time before you started in 4500 and they had an IPO? Yep. Yeah. Five and a half years. But I mean, I spent 15 Which, years at one place. And I'm. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm kind of an odd person for my age group, and I've never been at a company longer than like eight years. And yeah. that was only because AT&T got by Singular, then they got bought by AT&T. So it was like a span of eight years of two mergers, acquisitions. So, but I think you're absolutely right. Not everything is, you know, even a, maybe there is, you know, the failure. But once you're in that ecosystem, your name gets associated. You start to get to know people in that ecosystem. And there's so many opportunities, especially now, there's like no reason not to go explore that. There's just so much out there right now. And I just wish I want more people colored to be able to participate in that wealth creation right now that tech right. and these startups are presenting. And why, we, why, we don't do why don't we do that? I don't know. I've, I've tried to talk to some people I'm mentoring and they keep going toward the big roles at Google or the big roles at Facebook or the big roles at you right. know, Microsoft. Those are great. I'm not bashing that at all. Those are great, great companies and great opportunities, but it's not really going to change the game for you in a short period of time. Right. Those companies, they've already had their big pop in terms of the equity and all that. They're stable. You'll get a great salary, great money. But what I guess, what's your goal? Do you want financial yeah. independence or do you just want to sustain your, you know, current lifestyle and, or, you know, improve it mildly or whatever? I think all of us have the opportunity to change more than just our own lives. We have an opportunity to change our community lives. And like, in order to do that, we need to be solid. We need to be sitting on a solid foundation. And which means we can take some risks. We can say some things that we're not worried about getting fired because we don't need the job. We're okay if we didn't have that job. You know, and like, I think that people of color just more, they tend to be a little bit more risk averse for a lot of real good reasons, uh, really good reasons. And right now we're just, I think we need to get beyond that. And it's bad because... I am just like mentoring some people, they're mid-career, they're doing great. And they talk to me and they're like, oh, I have this opportunity at, you know, whatever, Facebook or Meta, whatever the name is now, and or this startup. And I'm like, go for the startup. That's going to be good. And in the end, they didn't do it. Like I had one person come back to me and said, oh my gosh, that startup just had their IPO. I would have made this amount of money. And I'm like, right. I didn't even do it. The regrets. The yeah. regrets. So now you've had your exit, you know, you've got a little change in your pocket. You're now an credit investor. So when did you decide to start investing in startups? Because there's two ways to do that. You either work for the company, which you have done, or you become a private investor in that company. So tell me about that journey. Yeah, I mean, I think I got to the point, well, so it, Part of it is your own personal energy conservation. And, you know, it, this journey is not trivial, was not trivial, takes a lot of personal energy. Plus, you want to enjoy life a little bit. Part of it is like, let me enjoy all the hard work that I put into this. But I'm not going to be sitting on a beach drinking pina coladas and not doing anything. 
for me to feel happy, I have to keep giving back to the community because I know, like, I had those struggles and I had those Charles Tunstalls and I had those Norm McBrides and I had those situations where I even remember one of the first, uh, it was a black woman at Pac Bell. She took me under her wing and she gave me the lay of the land around the politics and who not to trust and who to trust. And, like, I want to make and help people like that. I want to keep giving back. And so just sitting on this money and investing, it's great. It's nice. But like, what am I going to financially give back? And how am I going to help make a better environment for future leaders, you know, people of color who maybe their road won't be as tough. I want to make it, you know, easier. And I want to have wealth be more equitable across business. And we need all the talent, not just the white talent, or not just the female white talent. We need all the talent. We right. need that diversity to tackle these very tough problems. And yes. it's not to negate anybody else. It's just to say, like, no, we need to bring more ingredients into this solution. And you can't just keep adding the same ingredient and expecting that it's going to get better. You need different people. So I want to contribute now in terms of giving a portion of my money back into very kind of high-risk situations, which venture investing, angel investing is very high risk, very high right. risk. So right. pretty much any money I give, I actually don't expect to see it back. Uh, mm. yeah. Maybe it comes back, maybe it doesn't, you know, but that's okay. I got to a point where it's not going to hurt me. I have a portion of my wealth that I'm like, I'm going to invest this. I'm going to be okay with losing it. And why is it important to invest in Particularly, I know that we both share the, the love for investing into black and brown women. Why is that important? You know, why are you saying I'll write your check and go soar? <laughs> First of all, they need the money. How are you going to be successful if you don't have the money? I mean, how would I have gotten through college if I didn't get scholarships and I didn't have, you know, uh, Charles Sunsall come over and say, hey, I got a scholarship for you. They need the money to grow their businesses, to start their businesses, to quit their full-time job so they can focus on this great idea. They need that support. More importantly, they need people who believe in them. And mm. like the rejection for, I think, women-led, people-of-color-led businesses is so high. Most human beings will just kind of at some point descend into kind of, I can't do it. The negativity right. they descend in. And so we need more. And unfortunately, the way... VC and angel works today and people of color are seen as high risk or women are seen as high risk as well. And they are higher risk because our society doesn't support them in the same way. But the only way we're going to change that perception is to start to have successful people of color and women who are doing it. And the only way they can do it is if they have financial support to do it. So right. That's why I do it. And I think that's why you have to start the change. And the only way to start the change is you have to have some basics. You have to have some home runs. If you could get a home run, people are going to start like questioning, well, wait, that black woman was able to do it. And she is super successful. She's not just, a, you know, like an anomaly that what it, there's like this whole group of people out there who aren't getting these opportunities. So we got to stop exactly. being the anomalies, you know, like it's more than yeah. just us who can be successful. I love that. I love that. 
And let's talk about, you're also a venture partner with Flying Fish. Can you talk about what is a venture partner and what does that mean? Yeah, so as a venture partner, so a general partners within a venture firm, they raise money from organizations. They create organizations and wealthy families, and they create these funds. And you'll hear about things like Fund 1 or Fund 2. Well, I actually, uh, Flying Fish Partners, which is, has one female general partner and two male partners, but they're driving to have both invest in very diverse uh, women-owned businesses and diversity in general. They're really pushing for that. And I decided to invest in their fund. And as part of investing in their fund, I have an opportunity later down the road when they get the profits from these investments, I get a portion of that profit. And it's based on an agreement according to what I invested. So it's a longer term kind of event in terms of investing, but I more do it just to learn the VC space. And what I do specifically is I do a lot of due diligence and I look at companies that the general partners are considering investing in. And I give them my opinion about, you know, would I invest in that company or not? And what are the things they need to consider? So as a venture partner, I'm not a general partner, but I do participate. And for example, with Vouch.id, I sit as a board observer, meaning that uh, Flying Fish invested money in the form of a note. And then I represent Flying Fish on the board of that company. So board appointments can come. And right now mm-hmm. I'm exploring, you know, as my next phase, I'm kind of exploring, should do I want to try and become a general partner of a VC fund? And what do I need to do that? So those are just some next things I'm looking at. Yeah, and that's pretty exciting. And one thing I would tell people is that you don't have to be an accredited investor to be a venture partner. So I've seen a lot of people been able who want to break into venture will look at a venture partner role because it is one way in. You know, we have to we have to get in this game by <laughs> any ways we can get into. Vanessa, you and I talked about in our pregame the dog belly of capitalism. And I would love for you to tell our audience members like what that means and like how do we get out of this darkness? <laughs> yeah, so I think it's been a learning experience for me to really understand I guess private equity and VC is kind of a component of private equity. But this is money pulled by wealthy individuals, institutions, and given to people to manage and invest for them. There's a lot of money. PE has, like, it's just an incredible amount of money that they're managing for wealthy individuals, but also institutions. And when I look at how you can invest that money, there's one aspect of, um, which I don't think all, you know, private investment is bad, but I think when you look at an organization and you completely disregard the human, the people that are part of that organization, and you see it as purely a financial transaction where you can manipulate and figure out how you're going to extract, it's a spreadsheet exercise. To me, when people are treated as an item on a spreadsheet, I call that kind of that dark belly of capitalism, where we've completely taken away the people, uh, you know, the human beings that are part of that organization. And unfortunately, you do see that happening more frequently in the private equity space. And I think there is going to be a point 
where hopefully we begin to question this as a society is the only goal that we have to extract the maximum value and the people don't matter. And I think that is fundamentally how capitalism works. But I would say maybe we need to think about that a little bit more. Maybe we need to, I'm not talking about like, people want to label it. They want to say, oh, well, you're like, you know, they want to label you as a socialist or whatever, whatever the (laughs) word is. And I'm not looking for labels. I'm looking for us as human beings to think about how we treat other human beings. And the fact of the matter is like, because they're in a company and their families rely on those jobs, are they just widgets? Are people just expendable? Are people Hmm. like nobody, you know, really cares about you and you're just kind of discarded in order to make the spreadsheet look better. And I think that's the part where I I learned a lot more where I'm like, I'm not sure I really agree with that at all, nor I had to question how I want to be a part of that, you know, especially in the future. So I prefer to invest money to help people grow, to help make the pie bigger for everybody, to help more people, you know, like invest in people, invest in ideas, invest in things that you believe will make this world better. I want you to leave us with some closing remarks on, you know, what you would tell your younger self or what you would tell the little brown girl inside of you (laughs) about her journey. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think what we all need to tell ourselves is, regardless of what anybody else tells us, we know our own value. We know our own strengths. Nobody can take that away from us. I mean, it doesn't matter. I had many failures. I had that professor who basically was like, you need to get out. You need to transfer. You're not going to make it. He didn't believe in me. I mean, you just have to continue to believe in yourself. Don't give up on your dreams and don't let anybody tell you what you can or can't do. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show. Please subscribe, tell a friend, check us out, let the world know. You can find out more information about this podcast at LeeChabelle.com. And remember, be an angel, invest. Invest.